morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. And um, man, I'm so glad the Eisners are here. Uh, they've been encouragement to so many of us. Uh, just truly, they have servant hearts. And Blaze has been uh, an encouragement to me personally since day one. So if you don't know the Eisners, get to know them. Uh, you will be blessed. Uh, if uh, you're new here, my name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and if we have not met yet, please introduce yourself to me after the message. I'd love to, to meet you. Um, we've been in a series on uh, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, famous sermon. And we have come to the last passage here in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus, through this whole sermon, is working incredibly hard to make sure that we understand the kingdom of God, that we get it. He works incredibly hard to make sure that we get the good news of God's grace. And he takes on some incredibly difficult issues, and this last issue here, I think, uh, is one of the most critical and the toughest. And if we don't get this, I mean, we probably miss everything else that, that he said. Here's the deal. Dangerous, spiritually destructive, counterfeit Christianity is what is most common around the world and especially in the United States of America. It is a moralistic, self-righteous religion. It's a problem in our day, and it was a problem back in Jesus' day. Here's the deal. When Christianity gets hijacked and politicized, when Christianity is used to conform people into our image, or when Christianity is used to control people, or when Christianity is reduced to some kind of, you know, self-improvement plan, it's not the gospel of Jesus. It totally misses the mark. It, is, it could be any number of things, but definitely not Christianity. Countless people accepted a religious distortion of Christianity, and therefore, since it is so destructive, countless people have been hurt by it and then have rejected this religious distortion of Christianity, thinking that they've rejected Christianity. They haven't rejected Christianity. They've rejected a religious distortion of Christianity. And now they don't want to do any, have anything to do at all with anything called Christianity. So we must be a church that teaches and preaches and prays against moralistic, self-righteous religion in our lives, in our church, and in our world because it leads to destruction. This is critical. We got to get it. And just on a side note, I, I spent, as I was anticipating this, I spent some time, a lot of time, just frustrated, I think. 
I, I think there's some sinful frustration and maybe some sanctified frustration, some sinful anger and maybe some righteous, holy anger because of how popular self-righteous, moralistic religion is and how appealing it is and how many people buy into it and totally miss the point. And it's really frustrating when you see so many people just go for it and love it. I mean, in, I mean, just droves of people are drawn to counterfeit Christianity, and it makes me want to pull my hair out, which is why I shave my head. <laughs> now, I don't know if I can communicate the best way for me to uh, express my exasperation. Imagine a band or an artist, some singer, that you think is incredibly overrated, that they are, have no talent, everybody loves them, super popular, they sell out maybe arenas with thousands of people, and you're wondering why? They're horrible. Any bands come to your mind? I just want to challenge, you know, test our unity as a church here. Imagine just all of a sudden waking up and suddenly you find yourself in the midst of this concert, surrounded by thousands of people just cheering on this horrible band and singing along, and you're thinking, what's wrong with you people? Don't you see how horrible this is? And your best friends, they love it. And you're like, why? That exasperation is nothing, okay? As exasperating and as confusing as that is, as frustrating as that, nothing compared to the frustration of seeing just hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people being drawn to a counterfeit, empty Christianity that has all the, I don't know, maybe they're attracted by the bells and whistles and, I don't know, the fanciness of it all or the impressiveness of it, of, of the presentation, or whatever it is. And the gospel is completely sidestepped. It's completely missed. Or at best, it gets tacked on. Yeah, the gospel, I heard it. Let's move on to these biblical principles or whatever. It is the most common source of the preaching and teaching and books and articles and blogs and movies. And it's called Christian. But it's not. This morning I want to try to strip away the religious baggage so that the gospel can be seen for what it is. If you know me, you know that this issue is incredibly concerning to me. And I think I'm in good company because what we see in the Gospels is that it's incredibly concerning to Jesus as well. That's why Jesus was constantly, constantly, constantly contrasting two different things. 
Uh, we did a series on the parables not long ago. We did a, 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 a whole sermon series on them. And what we see when we look at the parables, we have the Pharisee and the tax collector. We have the two groups of workers. We have the wheat and the weeds. We have the sheep and the goats, the two debtors, the two sons, the two paths, the two trees, the two wineskins, and the two builders. Jesus is teaching the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because when Jesus would teach, the people would take what he said and pour it into their own categories. Uh, they weren't really listening to Jesus at all. We do the same thing. And we take the words of Jesus and we read it the way that we want to read it. And we say, yeah, sure, Jesus, I agree with you. I mean, you're saying basically what all, all of the other religions say, which is, you know, it's all about love. Or, yeah, I, I agree with you, Jesus, along with all the rest of the churches in, in America. Don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do, or you're going to burn in hell. I'm right there with you, Jesus. And Jesus has to keep saying, no, you still don't get it. And he would explain it. Oh, got you, Jesus. And it's like amnesia. So he has to keep teaching it. This is why we have to keep teaching it, because we have amnesia. And we forget it. That's why we will never move beyond the gospel here. There is no moving beyond the gospel. There is nothing supposedly deeper than the gospel. So Jesus teaches the gospel and his kingdom over and over and over again. And says, you still don't get it. And he says, no one has ever said the things that I'm saying. No one's ever made the claims that I am making. I do not come into anyone's life uh, to, to help them tweak or refine their philosophy of life. I am here to shatter your philosophy of life. I'm here to destroy all of your foundational assumptions because they will destroy you and so many other people. So he's taking this seriously, and he says, I demand to be the lens through which you see everything. Why? Because that is the best thing for us. It's the best thing for us. You see how important this is? Now, in a group like this, some of you here don't claim to be a follower of Jesus, at least not yet. And so far, you've rejected the message of Jesus, but I'm here to tell you, that you haven't heard the message of Jesus. His words have been poured into man-made religious categories, if not by you, then maybe other people you know who call themselves Christians. And maybe others of you say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but listen, this should be sobering. There will be people on the last day who will say the same thing. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why is that? They're looking through a distorted lens of man-made religion. Not gospel-centered, Christ-centered religion. Not the holy religion that we're taught in the New Testament. Jesus' purpose and his teaching is nothing less than a revolution 
of understanding. Not a tweak, not a modification, a revolution of understanding. He wants to shatter our old moralistic lens and give you a new gospel lens. He wants you to listen to him and view all of life in a new way. So as we look at this section, this parable, we're going to wrestle with this question. The question is, what do we learn about these two different lenses? And if you're paying attention, and if you're taking it seriously, there's a very good chance that you're going to have questions that might not get answered, or you're going to have frustrations. That's not a bad thing. If you do, talk to us about it. Let's hammer through it. Jesus was infinitely better teacher than, than me, and his people still had, his listeners still struggled with this. So it's going to happen. So what do we learn about counterfeit Christianity versus the gospel? And we see three basic lessons. First of all, at first glance, the lives that they build look alike. These two houses look alike, but they're very different. Now, I don't know, you may have seen it in my, in my feed. I, I've come across this one video a few times, some YouTube video titled something like, Moms prank their kids. Have, has, has anybody here seen that video? I'm the only one? Okay, a couple, couple people. And so mom comes in, one of them, there's, mom comes in to her two little children. They're like three years old or two years old. Homemade lollipops. They grab them, they take the rip, wrapper off, and it's broccoli on a stick. And they're like, ah, Right? There's another mom who, his, her toddler loves grapes. She says, you want a grape? Yeah. Hands him a, a little tomato that looks like a grape. And he pops it in there, and he's chewing. And then his face just turns inside out. He's like, Bleh. right? And the mom's like, ah! <laughs> Horrible mom, right? <laughs> and the last one, I made caramel covered at, Car- you say caramel or caramel? Ah, see? Church unity <laughs> just took a notch, got kicked down a notch. Caramel, caramel-covered apples. I made some for you. The kids, yay! And they grab them. They take big old bites out of the caramel, caramel-covered apples, except they were caramel-covered onions. <laughs> and the mom's like, ah! <laughs> so, you know, gotcha. These kids, they were destroyed. And mom thought it was hilarious. Anyone here ever been sold something that was a fake or not as advertised? Yep. How'd that make you feel? Jesus does not want you to get ripped off. And he's contrasting two very different ways to build your life that look similar on the surface. But they're very different. When it comes to Christianity, people buy into counterfeit Christianity all of the time. All of the time. I wrestle with whether or not I should give examples. And the risk is me trying to present Myself or our church is the only one who gets it, which is baloney. I don't believe that. Or that I'm trying to tear other people down. 
I just see it time and time again where the gospel's cool and all, but it's not cool enough. We have, to, we have to be cool like this. And then so much is done in the flesh. Now, there's nothing wrong with being cool, right? Nothing wrong with that. But if that's what you're trusting, if that's what you're looking to, it's how cool you are instead of trusting Jesus. Or maybe you're different. You love systematic theology, and this church is all about systematic theology. I've seen so many people who are experts in systematic theology who display no fruit of the Spirit. They honor God with their their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. I've seen people who are incredibly involved. They attract so many people because of their political involvement or whatever. Gospel's cool and all, but what we're really trusting is our politics. And it happens over and over and over again. The gospel's great and all, but it's not quite enough. We also need this. We all will be tempted with that. And Jesus wants us to be on guard against it. You know, most people assume that our main choice is between obeying God's law and disobeying God's law, applying biblical principles or or not applying biblical principles. I mean, that's how we want to read the Sermon on the Mountain, the rest of the Bible. But how would that be like two houses that look alike? If it was the difference between obeying and not obeying, that would look very different. So it can't be about that, right? Why would people be surprised at all when they realized they had chosen the wrong one? Here's the thing. Jesus does not say, here are people who obey God's law and people who don't obey God's law. No, Jesus says, here are people who are obeying God's law, but I want you to obey like this. Jesus does not say, here are people who pray and people who don't pray. That would look very differently, right? No, he says, here are people who pray... It looks like the same thing. He's all, but I am telling you to pray like this. Jesus does not say, here are people who give to the poor and people who don't give to the poor. No, he says, here are people who give to the poor, but I say, give like this. Jesus is contrasting two different ways. But it's not one good and the other bad. They're both good in that both groups are trying to obey God's law. Both are praying Both are giving to the poor. Both are going to worship. Both are studying the Bible. Both are trying to obey the Ten Commandments. And it looks the same on the surface. But Jesus says, don't you be fooled. Don't buy it. Jesus says, at first glance, they look alike. But secondly, in your notebook, when the storm hits, one stands and one crashes. The storm in Jesus' parable represents final judgment. And Jesus says, even though these two ways look alike, their endings are radically, dramatically, drastically different. And what's scary is that people will be surprised. And they'll be filled with the spirit of What are you talking about? I gave my life to you. Look at all this stuff that I did. 
This is not fair. Jesus says in verse 22, on that last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you evildoers. So here we have religious people in the church, and they're not only obeying God's law, praying and giving to the poor, but they're doing impressive ministry in Jesus' name. In our day, it might be something like they have hundreds of thousands of people reading their blogs and listening to their podcasts. They're writing entertaining and challenging religious self-help books that top the New York Times bestseller list. They're selling out giant arenas for their conferences and pastors and other Christian leaders are showing up from all over the place so they could be as awesome as these people given on the conference. They're even doing Christian TED Talks that get millions of views on YouTube. So these people, they must really get it. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with those kinds of things. But so many people are okay with all of that even if it is not zeroing in on who Jesus is and what he has done as being foundational. People are okay with saying, yeah, that's fine and all, but we kind of like this stuff. We kind of need this stuff. The gospel is not quite enough. And those people, Jesus says, are going to be shocked when the house crashes. And what's really scary is that it says many will be shocked on that day. We saw this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and early in the series and Chapter 5, Jesus talks about people in the kingdom of heaven and people outside of the kingdom of heaven. First, let's look at people inside the kingdom of heaven. He says, anyone who breaks one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Both groups in this verse are in the kingdom of heaven. Some are doing well. Some are not doing so well, but both are in the kingdom of heaven. But now listen to the next verse. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about these religious people and how they are not in the kingdom of heaven at all. I mean, think about that. Jesus is contrasting the lens of self-righteous religion and the gospel, and at first they look alike, but they're totally different. We cannot mistake being a follower of Jesus for simply trying hard to be good. We can't mistake being a follower of Jesus with simply obeying the law, going to worship, reading the Bible, giving to the poor. Now, if your faith is real, those things will be 
a part of your life. Faith without works is dead, right? But the truth is, you can do all of those things and still be on the way to destruction. That's what Jesus is saying. You're kidding, right? I thought following Jesus meant you leave the immoral lifestyle, follow Jesus' example, and obey God's law. Isn't that what Christianity is all about? That's involved. If your faith is real, you'll want to obey God, right? If you don't care about obeying God at all, you probably have no faith in Christ. But you can do all those things and look like a Christian on the outside. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. And when the storm hits, it is only true Christianity that stands and supports you. Self-righteous, man-made religion crashes and crushes you. Why? Because, last point, one is built on the rock and one is built on the sand. Again, these houses look alike on the surface, but they have two totally different foundations. So let's look at them. Look, what's the sand? Self-righteous religion says, I can do it. There are good people and bad people. God rewards the good people like me and he punishes the bad people. If I live a good life, then God will love me and reward me. Let me tell you something. This kind of teaching happens most easily and most commonly with our children. As we raise our children, we default into moralism mode. With our Sunday school class, we specifically picked a gospel project curriculum because the curriculum is designed to stay on guard against moralism, Sunday schoolism, Aesop's fable kind of approach to Christianity and to present Jesus as our only hope. But even when you use that material, it's still easy to default into moralism. Here's the heady stuff. Here's the, the gospel stuff. But... Let's shift gears into moralism. And we think that's what our kids need because it seems to be so effective. But you will either raise children who are self-righteous or raise children who hate the church and hate Christianity, one or the other. The same message gets preached in churches all over the place. And it's not okay. It is destructive. Jesus says you're building on a religious foundation of sand and you're going to crash. I don't care how Christian it looks. Remember how Jesus' Sermon on the Mount begins? Blessed the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, 
only those who say, I in and of myself have nothing of value to offer God. I am not good enough. I cannot be good enough to earn God's approval. I am better than anyone else. I cannot do it on my own. Only spiritual beggars like that can enter the kingdom of heaven. I've told you about Harvey in the first service. How old was he when he passed away? Was he like 90, 97 years old? And I told you this before. I visited him in the hospital. I mean, he, he spent years, 30 years in, in Africa as a missionary in two different countries over there. He started talking Bibles, a ministry where he translated the Bible into um, you know, various languages and made audio Bibles so people in the villages can surround, uh, surround, you know, kind of circle up and listen to it. Shortly after I got here, I mean, he had been retired for a long time. He told me or his family was invited over uh, to see how the ministry continued in Ethiopia many years later. And he said, you know, when they were finally landing the last, um, the last runway, as they were approaching, almost landing, he said it looked like the ground was moving, and his eyes adjusted, he realized it was people, a sea of people. 20,000 people showed up to welcome him back. His ministry was amazing. The sacrifices he made were amazing. It was all for Jesus. And when I visited him in the hospital, uh, not too long before he passed away. I told him what encouragement he was to us. We viewed him as a hero. And he said without any false humility whatsoever, he said, I find it difficult for me to imagine Jesus saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is someone who is not relying on his own works for approval, for God's approval. No one here can live even up to Harvey's example, but he knows the gospel. He knows Jesus. He knows he cannot earn his way into heaven. It is believed that the reason he was poor in spirit. I've told you before, Martin Luther said that he believes that the reason poor in spirit is first is because if you're not poor in spirit, when you start reading the Sermon on the Mount, you will be poor in spirit by the time you're done with it. Because Jesus raises the bar so high, none of us can make it. Check it out. Jesus says, you've heard, that we've gone through this. You heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment or subject to hell. And he says, you heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. But I tell you to love your enemy. He didn't say, I suggest to you, love your enemy. There's no suggestions here. These are commands. I tell you to love your enemies. 
Anything short of that is sin that destroys me and condemns me. We cannot water down these commands. We cannot try to lower the bar. Jesus won't let us do that. We, we cannot say, well, I'm sure Jesus doesn't expect us to be perfect, but the next thing he says is, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God does not grade on a curve. An all-holy, just, perfect God deserves and demands perfection. Anyone else here besides me have a problem with this? It turns out all of us are tempted. Our default mode is to build on this stupid sinking sand. So where does that leave us? What can we do? Jesus tells us here in chapter 7, ask. Ask, and it'll be given to you. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So here is the truth. The goodness that you need to enter God's kingdom and to stand in the storm is a gift of God's grace. Instead of watering down God's demands or or simply trying harder or just giving up in despair, ask God to give you his perfect goodness. And the gospel then says to you that God has answered your prayer. He's answered it. He's not stingy about it. He eagerly and generously gives it to us. Because what is the rock? The rock is Christ. And Jesus himself is the foundation of all Christianity. Jesus is the lens through which his true followers view all of life. He is the rock upon which you can build your life. The gospel lens says, I can't do it on my own, but Jesus did. I can't be good enough on my own to gain God's approval, but Jesus lived the perfect life of goodness for me. That is the gospel. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, do you see who is being described? Only one person. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. He is the only one who was never sinfully angry. He was the only one who never had lust in his heart. He is the only one who loved his enemies perfectly. He is the only one who was perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. And the gospel says that Jesus lived that life for you to give you credit for that. Jesus did not live to just be your example. He lived to be your substitute. If all you have is Jesus as your example, you're lost. You're building on sand. And you're going to crash. So do you know what Jesus does? 
he switches houses with you. Having lived for us, he then died for us. And he took upon himself all of our anger, all of our lust, all of our prejudice, all of our racism, all of our self-righteous religion of trying to be our own Lord and Savior. He took all of that sin upon himself and he died our death. And when the storm hit, he was destroyed instead of us. He was crushed instead of us. I'm telling you, the world is desperate for this message. Christians everywhere are desperate for this message. This is how we build on the rock. By trusting in Jesus to be our substitute. And so God looks at you and sees you as perfectly good in Jesus. And as a result, you know what that produces in you? When the final storm comes, you will be able to stand because it doesn't depend on your goodness. It depends on Jesus' goodness. So in closing this, let me, let me apply this. We have different people in here. And, you know, maybe you, you're not a Christian. You thought you understood it. You found yourself in church today for some reason. And you think, well, that's interesting. I never heard it explained like that before. It doesn't sound anything like what I've heard on the, the radio or when I went to my cousin's church or whatever. Let me encourage you, don't stop here. Make it a priority to understand the message of Jesus and wrestle with it and ask tough questions. Talk to a Christian, a friend or, or somebody in your family who gets the gospel of grace. Talk to me or, or Tom or Josh or any of our, our, our wives. Keep coming to services. Go out to lunch with people and just wrestle with this stuff. Now, also in a group like this, there might be some of you thinking, this is stupid and dangerous. You're just going to let people think they can do whatever they want. That's totally missing the gospel also. When you get the gospel, it motivates you to live for Jesus in ways that the threat of punishment doesn't. Truth is, Jesus was already punished for our sin. And if we understand that, we'll want to live for him and be zealous for his kingdom and his glory. So when we think this is stupid and dangerous, I think it's because the religion lens has become so precious to us that the gospel makes us nervous and we don't really want to trust it. We're talking about true Christianity. 
That's why I encourage you, if you're not in a DNA group, to be in a DNA group or a crowded house. We're going to be doing sign-ups like next week or something. For those of you who are Christians, I'm telling you, all of us have some remnant of the distorted religious lens. And as a result, when the storms hit, we either say, I'm mad or I'm bad. We either get mad at God or mad ourselves and we kick ourselves to the curb. But to the extent that you are building your life on the rock, you'll say, I could never be mad at God because I know I deserve far worse. And I know God is not punishing me because all my sin was punished in Jesus. And so here's the deal. It's not creative, witty, challenging books or seminars that's going to change your heart and life and draw you to God and give you the stability and the peace that you're looking for. To the extent that you build your house on Christ and you cherish Christ, then you will be, to that extent, you'll be a person of stability and strength and peace even in the storms of life. So Jesus says, you have two approaches to life. One's built on the rock and one's built on the sand. They represent two views of reality. When the storm hits, one stands. The other one falls apart, crashes and crushes you. And you know what Jesus says to you? He presents these two houses, and he says, which one do you want? And then he says, you can have it. Whichever one you want, you can have it. My question for you this morning is, which one do you want? Don't be fooled by the house built on the sand. Look for... Christ, cherish Christ, who he is and what he's done above all else. No matter how religious some of this stuff seems. It's all that religious stuff, if it's not Christ-centered, gospel-centered, is just a major distraction. Jesus is enough. Amen? Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us your wisdom and your insight to see Jesus for who he is, what he's done for us. God, I pray that, that you would expose the discontentment in our hearts when we may not consciously think it but so often our heart says the gospel's great and all, but it's not enough. I also need this, this, and this. God, I pray that you would guard all of us against counterfeit Christianity. God, I pray that we would find 
the peace and rest we're looking for in Christ and the truth of the gospel. God, we are so tempted to go to default into moralism mode when we parent or when we engage in politics or even in our religious-looking endeavors. We compartmentalize the gospel. We just tack it on. God, I pray that our greatest desire is for you. Help us not to settle for biblical principles that leave Jesus completely out of the picture. I pray that we would be gospel-centered in every area of our church, every area of our ministry, our food distribution ministry, our, our Sunday school, uh, you know, our crowded houses, DNA groups, our Sunday mornings. Help us to be determined to see Jesus and then to reveal Jesus because he is so good and gracious and all that we need and more than enough. God, I pray if there's anybody here who has never put their faith and trust in you that this morning would be their morning to finally see you. Give them eyes to see you. Give them faith to trust you. Give them courage to follow you. To trust you with their life and their soul, their eternity. Knowing that you are king, you alone are our savior. Help us to see, God, that the gospel doesn't just save us, but it's what also changes us. The gospel's not only what gets us into the kingdom, but how we make all progress in the kingdom. Give us the perseverance and the patience to wrestle with that. Help us not to view the good news as old news, but that we would be renewed in our joy and in our relief and our worship of you because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We pray these things in your name.